Russian President Vladimir Putin called the U.S. dollar's drop in dominance, quote, objective and irreversible during the recent BRICS summit in South Africa, as Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa formally agreed to use local currencies instead of the U.S. dollar. It's the first shoe to drop. As demand for the dollar weakens, the buying power of the dollar also weakens. That's why Birch Gold Group is busier than ever. Investors and savers are looking to harness the power of physical gold held in a tax-sheltered IRA. Text MONICA to 989-898 for your free info kit on gold. Thousands of happy customers, an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, and countless five-star reviews, you can count on Birch Gold to help you navigate transitioning an existing IRA or 401k into an IRA in gold. As the U.S. dollar continues to receive pressure from foreign countries, digital currency, and central banks, arm yourself with information on how to protect your savings. Just text MONICA to 989-898 to claim your free info kit from Birch Gold Group right now. Hey guys, I'm Monica Crowley and this is the Monica Crowley Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me here on this Friday as we wrap up another week of survival in Biden's America. This is your go-to for hot liberty, a safe space for all of us thought criminals, independent thinkers, and yes, happy warriors. Don't forget to check me out on social media. On Instagram, I am at Monica Crowley underscore. And on Twitter and True Social, I am at Monica Crowley. Also via email, I am at Monica Crowley Podcast at gmail.com. That's Monica Crowley Podcast at gmail.com. I'm getting a ton of your emails. I appreciate it so much. Keep them coming. I read them all. I see them all. And at the end of each show, or most shows, unless we go long with a guest or so on, I will read a couple of your emails. But I can't unless you send me one. Monica Crowley podcast at gmail.com. Okay, next week. Well, I have no idea what we're going to do next week, <laughs> but it will be big. I promise you that. Normally, I like to tease ahead, but uh, I don't, I'm not quite sure what we're going to do next week. But I can promise you it's going to be huge. Anyway, today I want to get back into a couple of things that we have been covering over the course of this week including the actual collusion between the regime and big tech, namely Twitter. We got a new document dump late last night from Barry Weiss. We're going to go through it all, and I want to make a really big point about this, which is not to be missed. Also, you know, when it comes to the Republican Party, nothing changes if nothing changes, which is exactly the way the GOP leadership likes it. We're going to get with Lee Zeldin on that because he was going to run for RNC chair. And after seeing the outrageous transactional bullshit going on over there, he decided against it. He is going to be here to expose it all. He is exactly the kind of leader that we need in a top leadership position. But if Lee can't pull it off, I mean, he almost won the governorship of New York. But he can't pull off winning the chairmanship of the RNC. This is insane, and it all needs to change. 
So we're going to get with him. Plus, as I mentioned, your emails. But first, the Monica memo. Everything that matters is rigged, including the RNC, okay? But keep this frame in mind as we talk about all of these issues on the show today, and frankly, all of the Monica Crowley podcast shows. Everything that matters is rigged. We're going to get to that in a second. But first, this big political news breaking this morning, Kirsten Sinema, Democrat senator from the state of Arizona, announced that she is leaving the Democrat Party and she is registering as a political independent. She explained her decision in an op-ed published this morning by the Arizona Republic newspaper, saying her approach in the Senate has, quote, upset partisans in both parties. She wrote, quote, when politicians are more focused on denying the opposition party a victory than they are on improving Americans' lives, the people who lose are everyday Americans. She told CNN, quote, I've registered as an Arizona independent. I've never fit neatly into any party box. I've never really tried. I don't want to. Okay, that's her first mistake in this in this environment, right? Democrats now have a 51 to 49 Senate majority, which includes two independent senators, Angus King of Maine, who's always been quirky, and Bernie Sanders of Vermont, who is an avowed socialist or Marxist. He's a communist. But those two almost always vote Democrat. They caucus with the Democratic Party, and they always vote that way. But Kirsten Sinema, who basically since coming into Congress has always had this independent streak, I think she sort of fancied herself as the new John McCain out of Arizona, John McCain in a skirt, if you will. Um, She's always had this kind of independent streak where she doesn't care. She's an out lesbian. She is, she dresses quirky. I mean, I really like her. I don't like the way she votes most of the time. And I don't like, you know, her party positions most of the time. But I kind of like her as this quirky personality. And frankly, politics needs more of that. It needs more of this. It needs more independence, freedom of thought. But here's the kicker. Kirsten Sinema declined specifically to say that she would do what King and Sanders do, which is caucus with the Democrats. She did not say that she would do that. She said, quote, removing myself from the partisan structure, not only is it true to who I am and how I operate, I also think it'll provide a place of belonging for many folks across the state and the country who are tired of the partisanship. Okay, so let's not be under any illusions here. Kirsten Sinema is a liberal, but she's more of a classical liberal. She's more of a liberal in the lines of like a Matt Taibbi or a Barry Weiss. The two now independent journalists to whom Elon Musk has turned with the document dump, and we're going to get to that in just a second here. But it's entirely possible, and I'm just thinking out loud here, but it's entirely possible that Kirsten Sinema has seen the Twitter files and has seen that Matt Taibbi, who's a longtime lefty, who wrote for years for Rolling Stone, for God's sakes, and Barry Weiss, who was at the New York Times for years, for crying out loud, that they now, that they have stayed true to an honest interpretation of what journalism should be. 
versus what it is now in the in the propaganda press, which is straight up propaganda, right? So it's entirely possible that Kirsten Cinema has been emboldened by Barry Weiss and, and Matt Taibbi and Elon Musk. And she's like, well, wait a minute. I don't need to be trapped in this structure. I can go off and, and be true to myself and the people who elected me in Arizona and try to actually solve America's problems. You know who sounded a lot like that? Donald Trump. Okay. It's possible to get people from across the ideological spectrum who think this way who believe like this, who are honest, and all it takes is one, right? I mean, Elon Musk has done so much to change the entire dynamic. We needed somebody of that stature in order to do this, right? I mean, we're doing it here on this podcast. I appreciate you guys. And we're doing it in our little platoons in our communities, as we always talk about. But you do need someone of massive stature. And we had it and still have it in Donald Trump. Someone of massive stature who could come into the Republicans out of nowhere, having never done politics before and smash the entire corrupt status quo. Right? And then you need someone different coming from a different angle in Elon Musk. Elon Musk has the ultimate FU money, richest man in the world, ultimate FU money. They cannot, I mean, they're trying to destroy him, but really like Trump or Musk, when you are at that level, they have a much tougher time. And we needed somebody of Musk's stature to come in and break it apart from the big tech, big government collusion angle. And it's entirely possible that cinema is seeing all of this because really it only takes one. Donald Trump gave rise to all of these America First candidates and leaders now. And on the tech side and communication side, free speech side, all it took was one person of giant magnitude like Elon Musk to come in and start smashing it away. And it's possible that cinema saw this and saw the courage of Musk and Taibbi and Weiss and others. And she's just like, I can do this too. So good for her. Be under no illusions though. She is a classical liberal like a Weiss or a Taibbi or even a Musk. Musk has always voted Democrat until this year right? But it's possible that she now has been emboldened to actually forge her own path the way these others have. Now, don't think that suddenly she's going to be an America first MAGA red hat wearing um, conservative in the Senate, okay? So don't suddenly think that this is going to break apart everything that we know so far. That is not true, okay? She's still saying, I've got to be true to myself, and she is a classical liberal. So she's not going to start voting, you know, the way we would like. But there are certain issues like the building of the wall in her border state of Arizona, which she might go for. So there are certain areas. This throws a monkey wrench into the Democrats' plans, Democrats wanted to go wild in the Senate with court packing and Puerto Rico is a 51st state and all this other crazy transformative communist jazz, which now Kirsten Sinema may or may not be on board. She might go for this stuff, but I doubt it. I doubt it. 
So she has now thrown this giant monkey wrench into the Democrats' plans, and that is delicious. I will take it in any way, shape, or form, okay? Now, there is a rumor that Joe Manchin would do the same. Joe Manchin of West Virginia, of course, always like with the wringing of his hands and what do I do? I'm in such a deep red state, but I'm a longtime Democrat and I can't give it up. And I don't know. in the end, Manchin always votes with Schumer and Biden and the Democrat caucus. Okay. He never does what, what cinema does. He never breaks away. So do not hold your breath that Joe Manchin is going to do the same thing. All right. Now, is he going to hide behind cinema's skirt a lot? Maybe. But I'll tell you this right now. Manchin is not going to do it because Manchin has no balls. The lesbian from Arizona has more balls. All right, when we come back, I want to switch gears here and talk about Twitter, the actual collusion between big tech and big government to violate the First Amendment and your free speech rights. This is an incredible story. We're getting more and more of it day by day, but I will, I will tease you with this because we're going to cover this in the next segment. Corruption is almost always incestuous. How do you like that for a tease? More coming straight up on the other side. Sit tight. Okay, everybody, listen up. We all want to be healthier, right? Well, to get there, we have to have a healthier diet, which is not always easy to do. I can attest to that. You know, that shredded lettuce in a double-double and the fruit filling in a donut are amazing, but they do not count toward the recommended five servings of fruits and vegetables a day. Sorry to be the one to break it to you, but they don't. I don't always eat healthy either, but I will share that the Mayo Clinic says if you want to help prevent heart disease, lower blood pressure, and cholesterol, eat five servings of fruits and vegetables every day. I don't, and you probably won't. That's why I take Field of Greens. Unlike other supplements, each fruit and each vegetable in Field of Greens was medically selected by doctors to support your vital organs, like the heart, lungs, kidneys, and the immune system. Flu season is here, and I trust Field of Greens to help me stay healthy. Field of Greens works fast and tastes so good. It's really delicious, guys, and you'll feel better with more energy and you'll notice your skin, hair, and nails will look healthier too. I certainly noticed that in me since I started taking Field of Greens. If you don't always eat right and exercise, join me and take Field of Greens. Let me get you started with 15% off your first order. Visit fieldofgreens.com and use promo code MONICA. That's promo code MONICA at fieldofgreens.com, fieldofgreens.com. All right, welcome back. As I teased before the break, corruption is almost always incestuous. Where you have a bit of corruption, you almost always have a much bigger web of corruption that is all interconnected. This brings us to the latest revelations about Twitter. A lot to cover here because we keep getting more day by day. Um, Earlier in the week... We got one batch 
of the Twitter files. And then last night, we got another batch from Barry Weiss. So let's break this apart. Again, all in the context of everything that matters is rigged and corruption is almost always incestuous. A guy named Jim Baker was general counsel at the FBI under James Comey. Okay, so again, keep in mind all of the incestuous relationships as we go forward in this conversation. James Baker, who was general counsel at Comey's FBI, was central to the FISA warrant to spy on the Trump campaign. He was also central to the Steele dossier, that pack of lies to smear Donald Trump. And he was central to the broader Russian collusion hoax to smear and ultimately destroy Donald Trump, cripple his campaign in 2016, and then cripple his presidency, and ultimately to destroy him. This man, Jim Baker, was central to all of it. He was one of the FBI's key men in furthering the lie that Donald Trump was some sort of Russian agent. So he is a professional liar, and he is a professional anti-Trump operative. Five months before the 2020 election, he conveniently left the FBI and went to, you guessed it, Twitter. Again, an incestuous turn. So many people out of the Obama-Biden White House and now the Biden-Harris White House went west to big tech. They went into Silicon Valley. They became lobbyists for big tech. Again, a huge incestuous web. So Baker goes over, he takes a powder from the FBI and goes to Twitter where he was installed. Installed. None of these people are on like uh, monster.com submitting their resume and like hoping to get a call from Twitter about an interview. These people are installed in these companies, and the companies, it's mutually beneficial. These companies want them. This is not happening unbeknownst to Twitter. This is all happening in this incestuous web. Five months before the election. Convenient timing, right? Right. Baker was at Twitter to help lead the censorship charge, of course, but he was also at Twitter to shepherd the FBI corruption into, not just into Twitter, big tech, and the national conversation prior to the election, but he was also there to shepherd the FBI corruption in order to protect it, to cover it up. You need operatives in these places to do these cover-ups, but also to import the FBI corruption into these places. And these places want it. It's willing, right? It's all willing, Remember that the FBI had the Hunter Biden laptop for nearly a year prior to the election. They knew it was real. And they knew a lot of the evidence that was on it was real. They hated Donald Trump. They needed to stop him by electing Joe Biden. And they could not allow the Biden family corruption to defeat him. So they began to have weekly meetings, weekly meetings with Twitter and Facebook and God knows who else to seed the idea that anything that might appear with regard to Hunter, Joe, the family corruption would be, drumroll please, Russian disinformation. When in doubt, blame the Russians. I mean, if I'm Vladimir Putin, and again, don't misread this, I'm not excusing Vladimir Putin for being a a terrorist and a murderer, okay? But if you're Putin and you're being blamed for all of this shit you didn't do, 
<laughs> you got to be like, are you kidding me? Putin does enough bad shit without being blamed for bad shit he didn't do. So by the time that the real story about Hunter Biden's laptop hits, these social media giants had been fertilized with the Russian disinformation lie. So they pulled the trigger and suppressed the story as they had been primed to do. At the same time, the former FBI snake, Jim Baker, now at Twitter, leads the charge to suppress the Biden story. Now, flash forward to today, Musk takes control. Baker and the FBI panic. Musk probably believed he needed Baker on a bunch of legal issues because I I know a lot of people are saying, well, you know, I mean, why didn't Musk fire him on day one? Musk must have known Baker's role in the FBI stuff. I don't have a clear answer to that, except I can only venture to guess that when Musk came in, everything was such a mess that he probably needed his general counsel on a bunch of legal issues, etc., which is why he kept him. But Musk announced the release of the internal comms on this. Baker stepped in to vet them before they went to these journalists, Taibbi and Weiss. And guess what he did? Well, he scrubbed all references to the FBI. That's why we didn't see any references to the FBI in the documents released a week ago, last Friday night, because Baker purged them. All of this was going on unbeknownst to Musk. At least that's what Musk says. And then um, about 24, 48 hours later, uh, Baker is gone. Musk cans him. Okay? Now, all of this reminds me of the fact that the laptop suppression was happening below then-CEO Jack Dorsey. As far as we have been told, Dorsey did not know that any of the, the broader suppression was going on with regard to the Hunter Biden laptop. The same thing was happening over last weekend when the cover-up of the FBI's role was happening without Musk knowing what was going on. So the inmates are running the asylum. Musk finds out about Baker's role last Sunday, that Baker was doing this, scrubbing the files of any mention of the FBI, and then on Tuesday this week, Musk cans him. The corruption is totally incestuous because the regime protects itself. By the way, on this very topic about the regime protecting itself and corruption being incestuous, during the pandemic, guess where Dr. I am the science, Fauci's daughter worked? Yeah, Twitter. Censoring away over at Twitter. Do you see how deep the corruption is and how deep the incest is? This goes further because last night we got another big document dump courtesy of Barry Weiss. Twitter executives for years have denied that they were doing any of this. Shadow banning, suppressing, oh, we don't have those kinds of algorithms forever, including Dorsey, by the way. So Dorsey may not have known about the suppression of the Hunter Biden laptop story, but he certainly knew about everything else. And yet he went in front of Congress many a time to say, we don't do that. They were all liars. Twitter was a platform of liars. So Barry Weiss last night began to release more of these Twitter files with the blessing of both Musk and Dorsey. Dorsey took to Twitter a couple of days ago and he said, release it all without filter, just do it. Okay, because he knew in the end, facts always do come out. 
except in the case of the Kennedy assassination, right? That we're still waiting on those files. <laughs> Gerald Posner is like the only one out there swinging like, um, it's been what, 60 years. I think we can, uh, release these things. But in any case, the truth almost always emerges. So now we're starting to get a fuller picture about all of this. And Musk confirms himself that Twitter was in fact shadow banning. And he's now promised a new tool to help Twitter users detect if they were being affected. And if so, how they could appeal. Very interesting. He tweets, Twitter is working on a software update that will show you your true account status. So you know clearly if you've been shadow banned, the reason why and how to appeal. So in this dump that we got last night, there is this detailed examination of a practice that the company called visibility filtering, also known as shadow banning. I have been shadow banned. I have been suppressed. Barry Weiss um, in her Twitter thread, and go look at it if you haven't, she identifies a couple of conservatives. And again, all of us high-profile conservatives have gone through this. She identifies Dan Bongino, Charlie Kirk, Libs of TikTok, those specific accounts, but we were all we were all shadow banned. So they called it visibility filtering. How's that for Orwellian language of being silenced and censored? This was a process by which the platform would reduce the perspective reach of a post with disfavored viewpoint and disfavored. They, they actually use that word disfavored viewpoint or the entire account without the user's knowledge. This process is also known as shadow banning. Okay. So over the years, you know, Twitter has faced all kinds of allegations from us that they were doing this and that they were quietly and deliberately stifling the growth of our accounts and the reach of our posts happened to me all day, every day with every single one of my posts. So before Musk's takeover, Twitter executives were out there, including in front of Congress under oath, denying that they were doing this. This Vijaya Gade woman, who is the then uh, head of legal policy and trust, she is a true villain. Also, the product lead, Kayvon Bigpour, wrote in 2018, quote, we do not shadow ban. You are always able to see the tweets from the accounts you follow, although you may have to do more work to find them, like go directly to their profile. And we certainly don't shadow ban based on political viewpoints or ideology. They define shadow banning as, quote, deliberately making someone's content undiscoverable to everyone except the person who posted it unbeknownst to the original poster. So that definition um, may be somewhat narrow in that critics and victims of this practice usually mean that only their posts have had their reach limited, not hidden entirely. Well, when they talk about you would need to go directly to their profile in order to see their posts, well, that defeats the purpose of following an account, which you need to see in your feed. So you don't have to proactively go to someone's profile to see what they've posted, right? So visibility filtering, the Orwellian term for shadow banning, long been denied, including by Dorsey himself. And there is congressional testimony to this, so it's going to be very interesting to see if the Republicans actually have the balls to haul these people in front of them and make them explain. And if their lies are borne out, then go after them for perjury, lying to Congress, okay? 
I mean, guys, we have always known that we were always the targets of the Twitter suppression machine. We could see it happening. You'd put out a great, clever tweet and, and you know, with a monster account and get like five likes. I mean, we always knew this, but we were dismissed as being conspiracy theorists, as with everything else, COVID, the vaccine, all of it, all of it, right? But what we're seeing now, thanks to Elon Musk, is total vindication, you will not get a single apology from any of these people, except maybe Musk, but all of these people who did this, not an apology, because what they do for a living is abuse power, seize power, control it, never apologize for it. This is what communists do. What remains to be seen is the direct collusion between the government and Twitter, the government and big tech, which would be a direct violation of the First Amendment. And that collusion between big tech and big government on everything, on everything, not just your random tweet about, you know, how bad Biden is, but on everything, on COVID, the origins of the virus, the shots, the lockdowns, the masks, all of it. We may get it. By the way, where's Fauci? The man who never met a camera he didn't like has been awfully quiet. Where are the other tech oligarchs? Where's Zuckerberg? Also, he's been awfully quiet. Just saying. I think we have just seen the tip of the iceberg, and there is so much more to come. When we come back, we're going to talk to the great Lee Zeldin about what we do in order to reform the Republican Party, because once again, everything that matters is rigged, including that. Before we do, though, guys, I want to take a moment to welcome a new sponsor, Nutrafol. Ladies, we all want to look and feel our best, right? And our hair is such a critical part of that. Our hair is our crowning glory. But did you know that 30 million women are impacted by weakened or thinning hair? If you're among them, please know that you're not alone and that there's a solution you can trust to deliver results. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist-recommended hair growth supplement, clinically shown to improve your hair growth, thickness, and visible scalp coverage. Nutrafol is a simple addition to your daily routine. Just four pills a day, and you'll begin to experience thicker, stronger, and faster-growing hair in just three to six months. As Nutrafol's powerful ingredients bring your body back into balance, you may also notice improvements to your overall well-being, including more restful sleep, less stress, and better skin and nails. And when you subscribe, you'll receive automatic monthly deliveries, so you'll never miss a dose. You can grow thicker, healthier hair and support our show by going to Nutrafol.com and entering the promo code MONICA to save $15 off your first month subscription. This is their best offer anywhere, and it's only available to U.S. customers for a limited time, plus free shipping on every order. Get $15 off at Nutrafol.com, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L, Nutrafol.com, promo code MONICA. We'll be right back. Well, welcome back. Um, As we have been talking about all week on this show, the Republican Party leadership fiddles while America burns. 
We desperately need a change if we're going to have any hope of winning in the future. Joining us now is our very good friend, New York Congressman and gubernatorial candidate Lee Zeldin, who was one of the few heroes of the midterm elections and was also our very first guest on this podcast. So he will always have a very special place in our hearts. Lee, welcome back. It's great to be back, Monica. Well, it's always nice to talk to you. Thank you for being here. Um, All right. There's a lot to unpack with you here. Um, You were strongly considering until just a couple of days ago running to be the Republican National Committee, the RNC chair, but you ultimately decided against it. Why? Over the course of a couple of weeks, I had a lot of conversations with members of the 168. That's what it's called. It's 50 states and six territories, each having a state chair, a committee man and a committee woman. And in order to get elected as chair of the RNC, you need a majority vote from the 168. Calling around, I found that there were a number of members who were in touch with the grassroots. They desired change. They care about winning and losing. They would have been strong supporters right out of the gate. Fortunately, as I was calling around, there were a bunch of members who didn't feel the same way as far as how important it is to be actually winning elections. Uh, there were members who uh, seemed like they were cutting their own personal deals. They uh, might, maybe they consider themselves friends with the current chair. And that was a priority at the, uh, at the end of the day, after making enough calls, I realized that if Ronna McDaniel wants to run for a fourth term, that this thing is pre-baked by design. And I'm not the type of guy who tilts at windmills, uh, I believe that I'm still able to help in, in in growing our party and weighing in on on my vision for ways that the Republican Party can better be tooled and transformed for 2024's important presidential and congressional elections that are upcoming. So I'm not going anywhere. Uh, I'm going to stay as involved as I possibly can to do my part to make sure that we're saving our country. Uh, but as far as a head-to-head election with the current chair, the thing looked predetermined to me. Can you describe what actually goes on there? Because, look, there's so much that by law and necessity needs to be transparent, whether it's at the presidential level or the congressional level or gubernatorial level and so on. But when it comes to the national party structure, like the RNC, so much of it is behind closed doors and nobody's under any illusions, Lee, that politics is all about back scratching. I scratch your back, you scratch mine. Somebody gives you a lot of money, you do the a favor. Of course, that is just the nature of politics. But can you describe what actually goes on behind closed doors at the RNC between the leadership, the RNC members, the donors? Is it just this like big incestuous organization and mess of like back scratching where it then becomes almost impossible for any challenger to penetrate that because the, the incumbent RNC chair has just given away so much money and so many favors? It's not universal, but it is too prevalent. And I'm a member of the House of Representatives here for a few more weeks. I'm finishing up my fourth term. And when a constituent reaches out to me, 
I don't have the attitude, well, that constituent's voice doesn't matter because they're not a member of the 435. For those who are RNC members, some of them, it seems like they view the grassroots as not mattering because they're not a member of the 168. And that's the wrong attitude. As far as uh, accountability, there were a number of members who uh, were concerned about expenditures at the RNC, others having more questions than answers. There's certainly a, a need to be able to get far better in how we communicate and message. Some members have concern with regards to election efforts when when you have a state choosing to legalize ballot harvesting, for example, the Republican Party can't just boycott ballot harvesting. You're going to get smoked. What you need to do is actually do ballot harvesting better than the Democrats, make them regret legalizing it in the first place. There are some individuals who care about uh, what their role and responsibility and perk and titles, whatnot, will be with a presidential convention coming up. Uh, others seem to be personally uh, benefiting financially from contracts and the other types of agreements with the, the RNC. Uh, there's just been a, 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 by the way, you mentioned something about donors. Uh, I had a number of donors during the process last couple of weeks who reached out to me, major donors, to tell me that they do not and will not donate to the RNC under the current leadership but if there was a change of leadership, that they would absolutely reconsider that. And we're talking about major donors. These people are donating a lot of money elsewhere. They're just not donating money to the RNC. So that's a dynamic, too. Uh, so you know, the more calls I made, the more uh, sunlight I was able to receive to it. And for uh, you know, anyone out there listening and trying to decide for themselves what's best for the Republican Party, I believe – that it's important for new leadership and fresh blood. And the current chair is talking about running for a fourth term. Uh, when she ran for a third term, she told the RNC members that her third term was going to be her last. Uh, I, as I leave Congress here at the end of my eighth year, I am at peace in knowing that I was fulfilling the founding father's intent of bringing my ideas, my energy, making a difference, and letting somebody else represent the first congressional district of New York. I'm a military guy where people come into jobs for two years or three years or four years, no matter how good of a job they're doing, they uh, end up moving on to other positions. They can't stay. Uh, that's something that uh, the military prides itself in. And that that's important, too. And lastly, though, I would say that by giving the current chair, Ronna McDaniel, fourth term, it's not like we're rewarding a massive amount of success here. Uh, when she came in, we had the, the White House, the House, and the Senate. We had everything. And between 2018 and 2020 and 2022, uh, these were all massively underwhelming performances nationally. 2022 should have been a massive red wave nationally that was somewhere between 1994 and 2010 and just didn't deliver. So the idea that you're going to make Ronald McDaniel the longest-serving RNC chair in history – you would think that all she's doing is winning, but that's not what's happening. And we just saw it again play out this runoff in Georgia. So there's a, a strong desire for change. I've heard it inside of the 168. I've certainly heard it almost universally. 
outside of the 168 and it's time to move on to new leadership and to have a party that is retooling and transforming for the future. Yes. Yes. And, you know, a couple of things about what you just laid out, Lee, which is, you know, it's so much easier for the GOP establishment, the entire corrupt status quo on our side, to point the finger at Donald Trump and blame him. No, Trump actually got the base motivated to come out and vote across the board. So it's not Trump's fault. It's the MIG leadership's fault. And at the top of that, in many ways, is is McConnell and it is Ronna McDaniel. And while she's a very nice person, Person. She has not delivered, and we've got to be brutally ruthless here because the country is hanging by a thread. When you also talk about how the RNC operates, again, nobody is under any illusions that this is how politics works. But how can we as Republicans go after the Democrats and the left for operating this way when we do the exact same thing? And if nothing changes on our side, then nothing changes. So, you know, you mentioned um, you're not running for RNC chair, which I think is a huge loss, but I certainly understand where you're coming from. Harmeet Dillon, who is a fantastic lawyer for our side, she's a great fighter. She's announced that she is running against Rana. But also, you know, she puts on Twitter that she's running up against the exact same brick wall that you did. So what do you expect to happen here? Well, first off, I don't believe that this should be about whether or not Ronna McDaniel could put together the votes to get reelected. I believe that this should be a conversation on whether she should be running for a fourth term in the first place. And the answer is no. After the results in 2018, the acceptable answer surely isn't status quo. After 2020, another massively underwhelming performance. Now you're losing more levers of power. The answer isn't status quo. After 2022, where all that happens is we barely are winning back the majority in the House of Representatives when there should be a a lead of dozens of seats. The answer isn't status quo. And for the people who are out there across the country who are, are seeing clearly exactly what needs to get done going forward, On so many fronts, from the way that money is spent to the way that we lean into election laws that are out there to organizing, collaborating, messaging, and and so much more, we need to be bold. Uh, We need to decide right here, right now, that the way that we approach 2024 is going to be so much better in so many aspects than what we have done unsuccessfully over the course of these last few cycles. Uh, you, know, you mentioned Harmeet. I know Harmeet very well. Uh, get along with her. Great. She's uh, somebody who uh, I believe is a, a fantastic candidate. I don't believe that the situation should be that uh, this is a competitive race against Ronna McDaniel. What, what are we doing here? Was she going to stay and run for a fifth term no matter what happens in 2024? Is she going to run for a sixth term? no matter what happens in 2026, results matter. And it, it's time. I mean, listen, if I was if I was in the position, I would be gone. You know, regardless, by the way, of even if we had won all three of the elections, I wouldn't be running for a fourth term. If I, you know, if the story that was being written was that Lee Zeldin was the greatest RNC chair in the history of the RNC, I still wouldn't be running for a fourth term. It's time for change. And what we were able to do here in New York was 
deliver a red wave within the state. And there was a lot that we did here in New York that should have been done elsewhere. And it requires leadership of the national party that unfortunately we didn't witness. Yes. And you know what? This is one of the many reasons why people are absolutely fed up and exactly why we saw the rise of the ultimate outsider and disruptor in Donald Trump and the rise of the populist America First movement. People have had enough of this crap. It's really like only in politics and maybe the propaganda press are really the two areas where you can fail up. You fail because there's no accountability. I mean, people go before the voters like elected office like you have. But when it comes to these kinds of institutions where there really is no accountability, like at the RNC, we, the people, the base, the, the organic voters, the organic movement, we have no voice in this. We have no say. It is infuriating. And I'll tell you, you, you probably already know this, but it is having a dampening effect on Republican enthusiasm because so many people in the base are just throwing up their hands like, well, I guess we have no say in this. We have no control. We're done. We're done. And it's, it's at all levels from the average voter in a small town all the way up to the biggest donor to the GOP. And so, you know, if you don't get a change, again, nothing is going to change. What are you, can I switch gears here for a second, Lee? What are you hearing from the Republican caucus? You just have a couple of weeks left um, in Congress before you leave. What are you hearing from them and with regard to House Speaker? And are you in the mix for that? There is a desire to change the status quo inside of the House of Representatives. And over the course of the last few speakers, uh, there's been a growing amount of frustration, regardless of whether Republicans have been in the majority or Democrats have been in the majority, that the way that the House is being operated uh, is being eroded. And uh, that is an, an ongoing internal discussion right now that is happening amongst a majority, what will be a majority House Republican uh, session come January 3rd. Uh, Kevin McCarthy, who has been nominated to be the Speaker of the House, is engaged in conversations with them to try to work through concerns uh, to make the House operate better. I would say, for one, the status quo does not work. Two, is that we have to fight and we have to be able to stand up for what we believe in. If we're passionate about the need to secure our border and we're seeing that Mayorkas isn't getting the job done, how are we going to hold him accountable? If we're seeing uh, a suppression of conservative thought, conservative speech, and uh, essentially monopoly that is growing to silence conservative voices, what are we actually going to do to fight that? Uh, as far as a ballooning national debt and deficit, what, what can be done now to think long term? There's just a lot of genuine concern amongst people who – uh, put up a significant sacrifice on their part with a ton of time spent away from their families at home to travel to serve in Congress. And they want that that time to be spent as meaningfully as possible. And they're there because they want to do their part to save their country. And I hope that what this process yields over the course of the next few weeks is one where the House of Representatives uh, is absolutely moving in a 
a much better direction than what we've seen and which was greatly eroded under Nancy Pelosi going back to a form of a regular order where more rank and file members are able to participate in the process that bills are actually being debated and vetted before voted on in a way people can actually understand what's in it. Pelosi's mentality was that you have to pass these bills to find out what's in it. She actually said it out loud with regards to Obamacare. So there's a a great opportunity here. uh, And that's something that the whole conference made up of conservatives and moderates from uh, all across the country trying to work out uh, with Kevin McCarthy and will Kevin uh, become the speaker on January 3rd. I, I don't have a, a glass ball here. I, I, you know, I just know that he uh, and holdouts are working hard and communicating with each other to try to figure it out. And I just, I just don't know. I, over the last couple of weeks, uh, I have been focused on uh, deciding whether or not to run for chair of the RNC. I haven't uh, been involved uh, to give the most you know intimate update of uh, of that dialogue that's going on uh, i would defer to some of the house republicans who have been part of those holdouts and in those discussions and we'll see and i'll tell you just you know one other thing that's interesting to look for is that you know history is very helpful in understanding how this might play out because a lot of the media is covering this saying that kevin mccarthy has to get to 218 votes that's not necessarily true It could be if every single person showed up and voted for an eligible candidate, then you need 218 votes. Uh, Back in January of 2015, there was an attempt made to um, block John Boehner from winning that speaker's vote. And uh, what wasn't expected was that a lot of House Democrats just weren't going to be there. Mario Cuomo had passed away. A lot of New York Democrats went to that funeral. And the way that it works in the House of Representatives is that you need to win a majority of the vote of the people who are there in person, not voting present, and voting for an eligible person. So the 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 move on John Boehner, I believe, if my memory is correct, they needed 29 people to vote for somebody else. But because of the amount of House Democrats who didn't show up, the amount of votes that were uh, needed by John Boehner went down. And then once it was realized by this holdout of the group, I think it was about 29, that they didn't have enough support. Now you have people getting cold feet. And the the move failed miserably because they didn't have the 30-something amount that was needed to actually block the vote. So something that's really interesting to watch for on January 3rd, and the exact number won't be known until they actually get through the entire alphabet, is how many people are there in person, not voting present, and voting for an eligible candidate, and then Kevin McCarthy needs the majority of that. So as you watch this and you say, okay, five people have said they're not going to vote for Kevin McCarthy at all, at the end of the day, is that enough? Or do they actually need more than that? And there's been some reports that more than those five have privately communicated uh, that they won't vote for Kevin. I don't know, you know what that number is or how true that is. Uh, but for those who are watching at home, uh, it's going to be interesting to see on January 3rd how many people actually show up, how many votes are actually needed 
And in the meantime, I think it's extremely helpful for the entire process uh, to figure out many different ways that the House can function much better come January 3rd. I think that's best for the, the people who go there to serve in the House. I think it's best for the country as a whole, desiring change at the House of Representatives. And, uh, you know, we'll see where the future brings us over the course of the next few weeks as these conversations continue. And we will see where the future brings you, too, because we absolutely need you in leadership in some way, shape or form. We are surrounded in the Republican Party by establishment figures who want to go back to the corrupt status quo of you know, 1987 or even 2015 pre-Trump, but there is no going back for this base. Okay, the base is pissed. We need modern leadership who get it and who are not in on the scam. And that's definitely you. So I don't know what's next for you. You might not know what's next for you, but please keep us posted on your plans, Lee. Okay, we really need you. You got it. Thank you so much, Monica. Always a pleasure. Our good friend, New York Congressman, gubernatorial candidate, Lee Zeldin, keep a close eye on him. He is awesome, and he is the future of the GOP. All right, when we come back, we're going to hit your great emails. But before we do, I know that it can be really hard to eat healthy every day. I know it is for me. And certainly to forget eating the doctor recommended six cups of fruit and six cups of veggies each day which is why I take Field of Greens. Field of Greens is powered with a full spectrum of essential vegetables and fruits, plus science-backed herbs and prebiotics. This is what I need to stay healthy. I'll tell you, Field of Greens works fast, it tastes delicious, and it will make you feel so much better. And if you're like me, you will have more energy, you'll feel healthier, your skin will look healthier, and it can even help you lose weight. So join me and take Field of Greens too. To help you get started, I got you 15% off your very first order and another 10% off when you subscribe. Visit fieldofgreens.com and use promo code MONICA. That's fieldofgreens.com, promo code MONICA. We'll be right back. Okay, guys, time now for the Monday email bag. Monica Crowley podcast at gmail.com is our email address. Monica Crowley podcast at gmail.com. I love hearing from you guys. I just, I, I got to take a moment here and say how much I love hearing from you. Um, you always have great insights. You tell me what you're really loving on the show. You raise all kinds of other issues and different show ideas that I might be able to cover. So I really appreciate you guys so much. Just take a second and shoot me an email. Monica Crowley podcast at gmail.com. All right. So earlier in the week, or was it last week? Can't remember. I was talking about the rock and roll hall of fame and Chris writes in with a very interesting twist on my thoughts from, um, a couple of shows ago about watching the rock and roll hall of fame induction ceremony and how much I loved seeing so many acts that meant so much to me like Duran Duran, Carly Simon, the Eurythmics. But Chris took note of another very special act that night. Listen to this. Hi, Monica. Pat Benatar, who was, she was honored that night as well, and I talked about her too, and singing to her as growing up into my hairbrush in the mirror. He writes, hi, Monica. 
Pat Benatar's maiden name is Andrzejewski, and she is my cousin. <laughs> wow, Chris, I'm telling you, we have the most amazing audience here. You guys who listen to the show, I appreciate you all so much, but you are surrounded in this listening audience by the most incredible people. So she is my cousin. He goes on to say, my dad changed my name to Anderson. He was a New York City detective. We all came from Greenpoint, Brooklyn, and all of us grew up there. Pat's mom sang opera professionally. And by the way, Benatar says that in the induction ceremony. She talks about her mother, who was a professional opera singer. Chris, this is incredible. Chris goes on. You told me in a kind response to an email that you're Polish also. This is true. I am half Polish, not the Crowley side. That's Irish. But my mother's side is 100% Polish, so I'm half and half. Chris says, you are my heroine. Aw. I moved to Wilmington, North Carolina from the New York metro area as I could easily predict what was coming. I really appreciate your intelligence, skill, and sense of humor. Be true to yourself You are a really good person and deserve the best. Best regards and success, your fan, Chris. Chris, one of the most interesting and kind emails that I've ever gotten. In fact, I don't know that I've ever received such a sweet email coming into this show. So a big thank you for that. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. And from one Polish-American to another, I am very grateful Now, as for Pat Benatar, as I said, I've spent many an hour in my childhood bedroom with Pat Benatar on the radio or cassette tape. Remember those, the cassette tapes that I had like a boom box in my bedroom. I'm sure many of you did. You'd throw the cassette tape in, hit it, and then just bop around. I bopped many an hour to Pat Benatar singing in the hairbrush and dancing in the mirror. How many of you guys did that? I mean, come on. You know that you did. Don't be embarrassed. I am now telling all of America I did that. To Pat Benatar, Madonna, Carly Simon, The Eurythmics, Annie Lennox, all of it. And again, this is not a commentary on their politics. I know most of them are way out there. Although, maybe, Chris, you could send me an email about Pat Benatar's politics. Uh, She has not gotten political, which tells me she's either one of us She's either a conservative um, or she is a liberal, but she's been very smart not to alienate half of her customer base, half of her fans buying her records, right? In any case, the woman is smart. Chris, I want you to tell her that. I want you to tell her that Monica Crowley is a huge fan for all of these years and that I absolutely adore her and think she is not just one of the most talented Uh, female vocalists and rockers of all time, but also a very smart woman as well. Let me know, by the way, if you guys have bopped around your bedroom to Pat Benatar or Madonna or or anybody, anybody, let me know. So I, getting back to Benatar, I absolutely loved her then. I still do. Because especially then she was one of the very few female rockers. Her music was rock although it was played on on all of the pop stations, which is where I heard it. She was a total badass and so talented. So again, if you ever see her, Chris, please let her know how much she and her music still mean to me. And I'd love to meet her. So if you can hook me up on that too, Chris, I'd be eternally grateful. 
Okay, guys, enough fangirling for me on this Friday. Thank you so much for being here with me and for looking at our terrific sponsors. We're all really grateful to you for that. They keep this show going and they keep the, this content on the air. So please go check them out. Have a great end to your week, a fantastic weekend with those you love. And I will see you right back here on Monday with a huge show.